0: Smarties, today we are so excited to welcome back Katie Nolan, who previously recorded with us in episode 95. We've linked that in the show notes. Today, Katie breaks down why she loves both formal and informal assessment. And she talks about the why and the how of informal assessment. Today is really An opportunity to understand what educational therapists are thinking when we are in session. She explains how intentional and formal assessments are flexible tools for progress monitoring, how it leads to more questions and increased curiosity, and how it also highlights resilience and tolerance levels. Smarties, Steph and I also just want to remind you that the doors to Learn Smarter Pro close on Friday. Learn Smarter Pro is our group coaching program, and it is perfect for a working professional in the early stages or considering building a private practice for different learners in their communities. You are perfect for this. If you are interested in some of the trainings we may be offering, we tailor Learn Smarter Pro to each group that we host. Some of the trainings that we've done in the past is why your client onboarding process really matters, client communication, how to network, and one that is always a hit every round of Learn Smarter Pro saving time through tools. We will link some of the episodes about Learn Smarter Pro in the show notes for today. But if you are considering it, please, please, please apply by Friday. And if this is something you are just considering, let us know and we can talk about it. Again, you can go to our website, www.learnsmarterpodcast.com for more information or email us at rachel and com. Now, let's dig in.
1: You want to learn faster. But sometimes working harder is just not
0: the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Today, I am super excited to have Katie back. Katie is the clinical director of CAP Educational Therapy Group and a major reason why I was able to take a true maternity leave with Elliot. So Katie, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Yay. (laughs)
0: Steph and I were talking about this episode and we knew it was important to have a conversation on the podcast about how to informally and sort of continuously assess. And I was like, nobody is better at this than Katie. So she's got to come back on and talk about it. So thanks for making the time.
1: Of course. You know how much I love assessments. She's coming in (laughs) hot too. We were talking before we hit record. I was like, whoa, okay. Let's start it off. Let's get the girl going.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. You guys are going to like it. Let's start with you love assessments.
1: Yes, I do.
0: You love a formal assessment, you love an informal assessment. I love
1: everything there is about assessments. I just love having that like concrete knowledge and whether it's norm-based, not norm-based, informal, formal. I think there's so much information you can take away about our learners that is just so interesting.
0: You just use some language, so let's break it down. Let's talk about what the difference between norm-based and not norm-based is and formal and informal. So go ahead.
1: Sure. So they kind of go hand in hand with it. Norm-based is when you are being compared to other peers of your age or grade, and it is norm-referenced across everywhere. And those are used primarily with the formal assessments, that that is kind of what the main difference between formal and informal is. Whereas informal can really be anything as simple as a conversation with a student. You know, you can kind of figure out what their interests are, if they like to talk, if they don't like to talk, to more in-depth informal assessments. And some of my favorites are reading inventories, particularly, especially if a student doesn't have a formal assessment, which isn't necessary when you're coming into educational therapy. Is it helpful? Yes. Do I absolutely love reading those? Yes. But like I said, it's not required. It's not a prerequisite. And so when we don't have those, it really helps to have as much information as we possibly can to really help garner a unique experience for a student, a custom experience.
0: Yep. So I love a good informal assessment, and I love that you said that it can be as simple as a conversation with the student. So can you share a little bit? Because we want to focus on informal assessments today. Can you share a little bit about why informal assessments are so great?
1: So informal assessments are so great. One, because they're so flexible, and you can really do them whenever. You need to. And, you know, an important part of educational therapy is really tracking progress and monitoring progress. Informal assessments can really help with that. And you can, you know, even incorporate one to two informal assessments every session, if need be. That wouldn't be possible with a formal assessment. And also, you don't need specialized training a lot of the times in these informal assessments that you do with students. And so it's just important to, you know, always be doing a check-in with the student of where I am, is the work I'm doing, you know, working, and are we meeting our goals that we have set together?
0: I totally agree. I also think they're great because they're low pressure. Yes. When students are going in for a formal assessment, they know, They know what they're being looked at, especially if they're a little bit older. They absolutely know why they're there, and they're hyper-aware of their own performance during that formal assessment, right? With an informal assessment, kids don't necessarily know. Steph, what would you add?
2: If you're doing a reading assessment, they clearly know. But there's other types of informal assessment, which if you know me at all, you know games are my informal assessment, and the kids have no idea. And that is the difference between getting a true sense of where they're at versus if you're getting anxiety involved or pressure or just whatever it is that's showing up. Informal is amazing. Authentic. It gives some good information. Formal gives amazing information, but informal
1: can give a lot of really good information as well. I agree on that part of the students not knowing about it, especially for our high anxiety kids, which especially with current times of our pandemic and everything, you know, anxiety does seem to run a little bit higher in our students. And so any sense of security we can give them in sessions of not feeling judged is always, you know, really a great asset to have on our part. So being able to take away information without having to let them know what exactly we're doing.
2: Perfect. I was going to say, who's our guest?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Jay Gatsby, who is quiet all the time until you get on Zoom, (laughs) requires to make his presence known. He also loves informal assessments, apparently.
0: (laughs) Very passionate.
1: (laughs) He has something to add. He's very passionate about the topic. He may jump in. I'm going to try and keep him away. All good. (laughs) (laughs) So Katie, why is it critical to be doing ongoing assessments? So as I kind of mentioned previously before, in educational therapy, you always want to be progress monitoring and checking in, is the intervention I'm doing working? And so the reason why informal assessments are so critical is because it helps us answer those questions in very authentic ways to the student, whether it's playing the games, whether it's a reading inventory or just the conversation, you really can... Get that information that you need to answer those questions of whether this is working or not.
0: 100%. She's answering it so fully, we have no follow ups.
1: <laughs> what can I say?
0: Okay, so you mentioned that you enjoy reading assessments, and I do, I'm going to ask you about how you specifically progress monitor through informal assessments for our clients with ADHD and executive functioning issues at CAP Educational Therapy Group. But talk a little bit about what you were sharing with us before we hit record in terms of these reading assessments.
1: I really love the reading inventories and I think they're great, especially when you don't have a formal neuropsych report coming into educational therapy.
0: If you're a parent- who's listening to this and doesn't know what a reading inventory is, what is a reading inventory?
1: It's assessing what your child's reading level is at the word decoding level, at the comprehension level and piecing together information.
2: Those are the ones that you hear the fontes and Pinnell reading letters that your child's teacher is probably talking about, or you are hearing they're at, you know, such and such year, such and such month. They're getting these from these inventories and there's, a lot
1: of them out there but these are just a couple that we're going to talk about that we use so with the reading inventories even if the student doesn't necessarily have a decoding issue or a reading comprehension issue i think it's something quick that you can do so it, you know it doesn't take up a lot of time of the students part but to just kind of make sure that all the skills you're looking for are
0: she has a menagerie <laughs>
1: I'd shut the door, but then they start crying at the door about it. If I mute myself, will you hear me yell at them? (laughs) So the different skills that you get doing the informal reading assessments. When I was in school, my master's program, we used the basic reading inventory, which is abbreviated as the BRI and kind of in the business that that's what you'd call it of, oh, did you use a BRI? And so, like I say, it starts off with word lists of where it's just a single word reading. It's about 20 words a page. And it goes from, I believe, like pre-primer two, which I think is preschool. Uh Mm -hmm. So preschool level all the way through grade 12. And so, you know, it also gives you benchmarks of reaching frustration. If a student misses a certain amount they've reached their frustration level, which means that it is too difficult for them, that they're not in you know, that zone of proximal development where they're actually able to intake any of this information. And the three levels you'll get, especially with the BRI, basic reading inventory, is independent, instructional, and frustrational. And you can also be in between. You can be independent, instructional, instructional frustration, at different levels. And something that's interesting about the BRI, when you're recording these scores, say your child is rocking it with these word lists. And let's say they're in fifth grade. So your fifth grader is rocking these word lists and they're able to decode words up to like the 10th grade level, right? So you're probably thinking, wow, five grade levels ahead. Like, this is awesome. Something's really clicking here. And then you move on to the reading comprehension section, which involves, you know, them reading a passage and the assessor or whoever is with them is following along with them and kind of making marks or notes that if they're skipping a word, things of that sort. And I'll get into significant versus insignificant miscues. And then afterwards, you're asking them questions that they're answering. So your fifth grader scored at the 10th grade level on words in isolation. Now you have words in context, and they're at the second grade level for comprehension. Can you talk about in isolation versus in context, just in case somebody is not aware? Words in isolation are going to be the word list, where it's just the single word. There's no context related to it. You're simply reading down a list of bird, sky, cat, dog, dog mouse, jump. It's just testing your phonetic skills of being able to pronounce and decode words. Words in context is I feel like just kind of a fancy term for reading comprehension. It's so of uh, putting words in a context of can you understand if Billy had a soccer game, the soccer game ended at five, you know, did Billy get home that morning or that evening? And, you know, understanding you know, he got home that evening because 5 p.m. is in the evening. So of making sense of those. And so if we go back to our fifth grade client here, whose 10th grade word lists were in isolation, they're able to decode very well, but their reading comprehension is putting them at the second grade level. Now what you have to do, we usually say to put more weight on the reading comprehension score because while your student may be able to phonetically Decode all these words, they're not understanding what they're reading. You know, it could be the same thing if you learned a foreign language and you just were able to kind of read the you know foreign language instructions on the back of your hair dryer is just the example I'm going to use because you know I, there's always that warning tag. Yeah on in French. <laughs> in French right? So I took French in school. I know how to pronounce the words. Do I have any idea what it's saying? No, you know w- I'll get a little bit here and there, but I wouldn't be able to you know go on and really use this hair dryer if it was solely in French where I'd really be questioning myself. Mm-hmm. And so you know it speaks to their comprehension levels and then it makes you kind to start to ask more questions beyond that. And that's a great thing about the informal assessments is that they can lead to more questions and kind of more answer seeking. So, all right, if his comprehension level is at the second grade level, why, you know, what's affecting it? Obviously it's not decoding because that would be different if his decoding the words in isolation list, if he was at the first grade level, He's using more brain power, having to decode those words. He's not having enough energy to really comprehend what's going on. Too much of that attention is going towards the decoding piece. However, if the decoding is not an issue, that brings into question, what is? Is it a retrieval issue? Is this student you know, just getting backed up in their own mind and not able to pull forth the information that they've just read to you? Is it an expressive language? Do they just not know how to organize their language and of telling you? And so some of the things you can do, you know, you could try having them write it themselves, have them draw a picture of what they think is going on to really suss out these finer details. It lets you also, what's great about the informal assessments is start at a level that is, good for them that's acceptable for them and the rule of thumb was always start two grade levels below what their grade level currently is depending on the information i'm given about a student beforehand i may start you know even more grade levels below that just cuz you never want the student to feel like oh my gosh i just failed this you know or like you don't want them to start at frustration you never want that to be Deal. You know, ideally they're going to start at independent. So that would be, you know, having zero to two miscues while reading, maybe missing one question here and there versus frustration, which would be messing up a lot during the reading comprehension part of reading the passage and then also missing about four to five questions. And so that's the BRI. And that's what I used to use primarily with my students until I found the Qualitative Reading Inventory, the QRI, and I know that gets a little confusing, we have the BRI is Basic Reading Inventory and the QRI is Qualitative Reading Inventory. Now, the main difference between these two informal reading assessments, in my opinion, is I find the QRI to be a more accurate predictor of a student's current level of performance. Uh, The BRI at times, I've had, you know, students that'll score a lot higher than they actually are performing in school. And it could just simply be because they were interested in those passages. So, you know, their comprehension level was higher. And I've found that, The questions are a little bit easier. Um, You know, sometimes they're like, they're true or false, or, you know, what was the name of this character? They're more explicit information. So more like direct recall of details from the story. The QRI really challenges a student to uh, dissect this material that they're reading. So it also starts with the word lists. Same thing of... uh, believe, you know, pre-primer to, I think they call it like upper high school. They categorize it into like the lower levels and then around at grade, it goes up to grade six, then it will say upper middle school. So like seventh and eighth and then high school. And so you have your ninth through 12th there. And so with those passages, before you read, you're given a kind of prior knowledge assessment. And so you're given four questions, I believe it is. And, you know, say you're reading about World War II. They'll ask you, you know, what is artillery? It'll even give you sample answers that a student may give you. And the score is at three points, you know, for full credit, two points or one point. And so three points could be, oh, you know, weaponry used during wars to combat enemies. That could be three points. Two points could be, oh, I think it has something to do with like, war and weapons and like one point would just be something in the war and then you can also score zero points but so there's about four of those questions that you ask before the student starts reading just to kind of figure out their prior knowledge and then they read the passage
0: prior knowledge is critical for reading comprehension it's something we talk about a lot
1: Yes. And then we talk a lot about activating prior knowledge, which is something that we always want to tap into. Because the thing is, is if a student has prior knowledge on a subject, they are way more likely to understand what's going on. They're able to make those connections a lot easier because they're starting with a little foundation in place. It's not starting from complete scratch and grasping for straws here and there. You have a general Mindset of where this is going to go and what your parameters and boundaries of the subject are going to be.
0: Perfect. I just added to our list for future episodes to do an episode on activating prior knowledge. Continue. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you have the prior knowledge piece that you do those questions. The student reads the passage and afterwards the next section is the retail section. Retail, not retail. Retail section. Um, this one, I feel is a little bit more difficult at times for the assessor, uh, and especially for myself, cause you're asking the student to, Retell what the story was about and you tell them to include as much detail as possible. And the details are, you know, written out on lines and you basically just put a check for everyone the student can name. And I try to help myself out first by telling them, you know, please try and do it in sequential order. You know, don't be like, oh, well, like they won the war, but they started the war back here. But then there was like this person, George, Because then you're just jumping all over the page trying to find it. And I might not mark them for a detail they got because I couldn't keep up with finding it. Because sometimes there will be like 72 details that a student can get. Does a student usually get all 72 details? Absolutely not. Do they get around like 50? Absolutely like not. Because it's basically a word for word recall which I tell them that on that I say you know like look they've basically rewritten it they want to know how much of it can you recall you know and so if they can get anywhere from like 10 and above on retelling you know that that's I'd say on the average side of it it really sticks out more if you have a student who can only recall two or three details you know and especially if they can't tell you who the main character was. Like, say they're telling you everything else about this story, but they're like, oh, he went to college and then he started teaching. And, you know, you ask them, well, who's he? You know, and they will kind of give you that blank look of, oh, and I'm like, I kind of forgot like literally the title of the story here. So after they have the retelling, it's then the comprehension questions. And these are the questions that I really like because they break it in. So there's 10 questions here too. There's also 10 on the BRI but the 10 questions on the qri break it into five implicit questions five explicit questions and it will list them as implicit or explicit so what is implicit question what is explicit question an implicit question is using inferencing this is where the information was not directly stated in the text the student has to kind of use context clues to make a reasonable assumption of what happened and why it happened. Understanding character motivations is often implicit. Uh, Predicting what's going to happen next in a story can often be implicit. Whereas explicit is where it's more direct Recall of detail. So if it was, you know, how many days were they stranded on the island? You know, that's directly stated in the text. They were stranded for four days on the island. And so if you can look at the difference then of comparing, say they get all five explicit questions, but one implicit question. That then allows us to understand that the student is having the trouble with inferencing, that they're not picking up on those subtle clues that are happening. And so since they did so well on the explicit part, that's great because, you know, we don't have to worry about the, you know, kind of main who, what, where, when, why questions were Really more focused on the, you know, how did we get to this or why? So I guess take off the how and why of my who, what, where <laughs> of doing those. But then also if you get a student who's answering more implicit questions correctly than explicit corrections I found that that usually means that a student is using their prior knowledge on the subject, that they are able to make the reasonable guesses of, you know, what would come next in the story or why a character would be feeling this. And you'll see this a lot of times in our, you know, really high functioning students that are kind of able to, I don't want to say like snake their way through school because it's not snake their way They're masters of conversation almost, you know, they know what to say. They're very, you know, verbally intelligent. They keep it together and they can reasonably guess what they need to say to get what they want. And so when they're answering more implicit questions correctly than explicit, it's showing that they're not really understanding what's going on in the text. They're solely using context clues from the question to kind of guess. And so these students you'd know like okay we need to focus on really checking in throughout these are the students who do need to focus on the who what where when even though they got technically you'd believe the harder questions correct it's just an indicator that they're they're not comprehending what they're reading they're just able to put on more of a front because they have more of those structures in place to gather what information would be best and most applicable to the situation. And so those ones are always kind of really interesting as well. And afterwards, the, after they answer that, you can also then give it back to them. They have like without looking back scores and then with looking back scores. So you can give them the text again and ask them the question and see if they can find it in the text that, you know, of once they're given that. Uh, ability to look back, are they able to figure out what the information is now? And if they're not, that then tells us, all right, you know, this student has some issues with finding information for answering their questions. And so you would know that they would probably struggle with evidence-based answers when they're reading in class, when it says, you know, cite evidence from the text they're probably just pulling a random quote, hoping, you know, fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. Hoping this one absolutely applies. And those are sometimes some of my favorites because I'll read the quotes out loud to the kid. And I'm like, so the question was about like, what was great about the merry-go-round? I'm like, your quote is about like, Jenna went down and got food. And I'm like, those two are not like related. And they're like, I guess not. And so of really emphasizing to them the importance of finding that textual evidence, especially the older they get. I want to say around fourth grade is when we would really start, you know, hammering it in. But especially for fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, the upper middle school levels, it's critical. And by high school, they're assuming you know how to do it. Yes. And so figuring out, you know, whether or not they're able to locate that information quickly, or if their eyes are just scanning the page forever, that that can help tell us to just jump off to another point real quick from that of the scanning just words on the page. Sometimes I'll even give them a word search puzzle, you know, uh, and of having them find words in the word search. And, you know, some kids will be able to knock this out in a minute, you know, find all the words. Great. Other kids will really struggle and that you can kind of witness their frustration levels. Because I was going to say that once you notice a student is exhibiting frustration, you can kind of see how much are they able to take of when something is challenging for them. Do they immediately give up and whine about it? Do they throw their hands in the air? I can't do this. This is stupid. I want to stop. Or do they keep trying of like, no, 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 wait, just like, give me a couple more minutes. Like, I think I got this, that you can also then kind of figure out a resilience, how they, you know, problem solve, how they approach things, what their modus operandi is up until that part, you know, because our goal is, you know, as much as students may claim that it's not, we don't want them to be, you know, frustrated and upset during sessions. So, you know, the goal is not for, you know, it to be like a beat up session. We want to build you up and we want to keep it in that zone of proximal development where it's just enough of a challenge where it's stretching your brain and working on those new receptors or connections that you want to be making, but it's not so much of a stretch where you have absolutely no idea and you feel lost in our floundering. And at the opposite end, you also don't want it to be so easy where you're like, you know, this is for babies. What am I doing here? We always want a student to feel, you know, engaged as much as we can. So informal assessments can really help us in those areas. And those are just two of the reading inventories that I use that can really yield more questions and more insight into a student.
0: I feel like we got a peek into how an educational therapist thinks through all that, through your explanation of the QRI and the BRI and how the information that you gather leads you down another path. It's like a find your own adventure through the brain a little bit, right? Exactly.
1: Another quick little informal thing you can see is if a student's reading a passage and they you notice that they're skipping lines a lot or that they keep losing their place more often than not, that's indicative of, you know, some visual processing thing going on. And so if I notice that that's happening pretty consistently, that I'll let a parent know, you know, hey, these are my observations. Obviously, you know, I'm not an expert in this area. But I think, you know, it would be helpful for you to go see a developmental ophthalmologist just for a vision test, pretty much. And, then, and I explain it more further to them because they may come back and answer like, well, what do you mean? Like Jimmy's eyesight's twenty twenty, And so, you know, that I explained to them that, that this is a developmental ophthalmologist isn't just looking at, you know, whether or not your child can see at a certain distance. They're looking at whether or not the information they're seeing is reaching their brain.
0: And we have done deeper dives into both of those things that you just mentioned on the podcast. So in episode 127, we did understanding vision with developmental optometrist, Elise Briscoe. She digs into a lot of what you were just talking about, Katie. And then in episode 145, we did auditory processing with Dr. B. Broad. We'll link both of those episodes in the show notes of this episode as well.
1: But that's kind of one of the great parts of educational therapy and collaborating with other professionals in the field of, yes, we're not the experts in audiology or vision, you know, but sometimes we're the frontline soldiers of seeing the issues and of being that voice. It's like, Hey, you know, this isn't normal. of like your kid constantly saying like, what, what, you know, that they're not solely doing that to annoy you. It's also, you know, that there might be something else going on there. And so of being able to be with the student and informally assess them in those ways of just even in conversation uh, really helps us to, get students the services that they need if they do need it.
0: Right. I want to ask you a little bit. I know you want to talk about Lumosity. So I want to talk to you about that. And then I also want to hear how you specifically use informal assessment For the kids at CAP Educational Therapy Group, where we specialize in learners with ADHD and executive functioning issues. Talk about Lumosity. Talk about the ADHD kid, the EF kid. Go for it.
1: So yeah. So another one of my favorite informal assessments is uh, the website lumosity.com. And what's great about this website is one, you can set it up for free, a free account, or you could pay for an account. Uh, But the free account really gets you everything that you would need Uh, You're given three free games a day and there's different skills that they are teaching students. And it will give you a little preview of the skill beforehand of, you know, whether it's working memory. So say, you know, working memory is a student's ability to hold on and manipulate information so that it has different working memory games that you can do with students. There may be information processing of, you know, how quickly do you process information and, you know, are you able to act on that information? And so kind of playing those games, like the kids love them. They're really fun. They're maybe a minute each. So it's a total of three minutes, you know, but if a student is really struggling, I know there's this one game called word bubbles. So that is for uh, verbal fluency. And they're given the starting of like a word like STR and you're given 30 seconds to come up with as many words that start with STR as you can. And as the time goes, it'll then go down to ST and then S and it does three rounds of that. And, you know, so I've had students that just sit there and stare like and they'll get maybe two to three words, which really says volumes to me, especially, you know, if they're fifth grade and up you should be able to get a little bit more than that. Uh, and then it also scores it differently for like three letter words versus 10 letter words. And so if they're only getting the three letter words, you know, of like the basic vocabulary, that that could speak to their vocabulary level, do I need to incorporate a vocabulary program to help enhance their language usage or are they able to use these big words? Are they solely focused on those big words? And if so, Why are they going for the difficult ones and leaving out all the points they could be getting otherwise? So that's one of the ones that really jumps out to me of a student struggling through.
0: How do you use informal assessment with our kids, with the EF, ADHD kids?
1: So in terms of informal assessments with the ADHD students and primarily the students that we work with at CAP Educational Therapy, It's not setting them up for failure. That is in no way what it is that we're trying to do. However, it'll it'll be kind of checking in of, oh, do you have any systems in place for organizing? You know, and most times the answer is absolutely not. Or what is a system? Or what is an executive function? I guess a little bit of a lawyer's tactic. You never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. And so most times I know that the student doesn't have any systems in place. And so one of the informal ones will be looking at their systems. And if they do have a system of what exactly it's looking like, you know, is it working for them? Is it functional? And so if it is functional, you know i'll move on of okay you know obviously our areas of deficit are coming in elsewhere and so let's go look at what other areas that you have going on how is our time management you know are you really putting everything down in your calendar another argument students love to have is oh well you know my portal tells me what my homework is why do i have to write it down and you know to quote rachel on this you know your portal's a portal it's you know it's not a planner, uh, you know, and a planner has that separate word for that exact reason that you plan in it. And so that you pull that information from the portal into your planner. Did I say that? I, I feel like you did. It, sounds it does like sound It's like really you. smart. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> Aren't that, like, amazing? So yeah, that you can see that with them. Other ones will be, if they're in office, kind of. How much are we moving around? Are we, you know, touching everything on the desk? We have the fidget toys, but are they using them excessively? Are they listening when you ask them to put them down? What are their reactions to just being somewhere new, doing transitions between activities? Can they easily transition or are they having a hard time?
0: It's like every interaction. It is. And maybe that's the nuts and bolts of this episode. Is that every interaction that you're having with the learner is a moment of informal assessment if you're in that brain space? Because believe me, when Katie, when you're out in the world, you're not like thinking this about everybody you're interacting with. But when we're in session, it's what we're looking at, right?
2: It's intentional. Yes. She's having intentional assessment of what's going on
1: and why and how.
0: Yep. Exactly.
1: It's always that checking in with the student in a way that they don't know that you're checking in you know that that way they don't feel as though it's like big brother watching over them that it still gives you that information that you want so sometimes that there'll be those sessions where you don't really get much academically done say right because it could just be one of those days the kid was not feeling it And so, and I find those days to be interesting. You know, when I first started working, I was like, oh my gosh, like we didn't get anything done. This was such a waste of a session. But, you know, as I've gotten older and, you know, more experienced in it, that those sessions also help give informal information of, okay, like when a student is feeling, you know, this mental fatigue, this mental block, how do we push past it? What can we do to help them reset and reach that? mindset of a place where they're open to doing academic intervention because of course I'm not going to push if a kid is screaming at me that like you know it's not going to work I'm not going to be like you know too bad we're going to do your math homework anyways you know I'm going to be like let's talk about it what is it exactly that's stressing you about it and so I feel like that that's kind of where the therapy piece really comes into part sometimes is Also informally breaking down their mindset and what their approach to what they're thinking and how we can help, you know, empathize with them in that moment. And then also help show them the way forward to get past those moments of extreme frustration or feeling shut down and of working past those moments because it's all just little, informal interactions that, like Steph was saying, is just the constant and, you know, really uh, purposeful checking in with them.
0: Yeah. And this is my question, I guess, for Steph and for you, Katie, is how do you guys use games as a tool for informal assessment?
2: My favorite thing about games is it's a low investment, high return. And the way that you can look at a student, how they solve a problem, how they approach it, how they get there. Do they get frustrated? Do they do the same move over and over again? Do they think it's not even possible and give up? It's just all these little things about how they approach a task and then get through it is an informal assessment. I can see exactly how they're doing things and then know that they're doing their assignments or big things at school the same way. It's not any different. So games for me are a huge way of informally assessing. You can also use games that have cards that you have to read things and you can see, you know, did they read it and decode it and read it fluently? Did they understand what is being asked of them, what they need to do? Things like that. You can use those as informal assessments, but also to strengthen these skills, because if you're doing them at home as a family there isn't the same pressure and it's fun. And so the kids don't even realize it.
0: Exactly. And I'm going to go ahead and make sure we link the episodes to the games that you've talked about your favorite games over the years Steph. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested to hear Steph sort of talk more about that, they will be linked in the show notes for this episode. Katie, did you want to add anything to that?
1: I mean, Steph really hit it on the head of, you know, being able to kind of pick up on these other little skills that we would be looking for anyways, but in a fun way to approach it. I love seeing the students with those two. any of like the logic puzzles, I think are always really interesting, and probably primarily for the how they handle frustration and of seeing their resilience and things because it helps me also structure sessions of knowing, all right, this student is less likely to tolerate. 10 minutes of this one activity. And so before I completely lose them, I, you know, can kind of suss that out with a game beforehand, or even of seeing kind of of how they're responding to me, like, you know, do they absolutely try to like demolish me in the game, you know, or like, is there some like, oh no, like, you know, like you can go or like, oh, I don't want to take your player from there. You can just kind of See like their interpersonal relationships of how they handle those as well, which I feel like also gives an insight into a student's like psyche, you know, what's going on in their lives at the moment.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for being my right hand, but also thanks for taking the time to sort of come on the podcast and talk about the whys and hows of informal assessment. I think this episode was really informative for our audience and if you want to work with Katie, give us a call. And by give us a call, I mean sign up on our website for a phone call. <laughs> Therapy. Maybe she'll have availability. You never know.
1: You never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Thank you so much for having me back today. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Katie. Have a great week, Smarties.